You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Amen. 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 Okay, so we're headed into God's Word now, and I ran across a story that I think really sets the table for where we're going this week and really picks up where we left off last week. This came across the newswire on April 17th of last month. You may or may not have seen this. I got this from Fox News, but it also hit many of the other outlets. And this was the headline, Texas teen dies rock climbing. And two hours later, he revives. This is a literal miracle. And this is a picture of who we're going to be talking about here. Sammy Burko, A teenage boy from Missouri City, Texas, went to a rock climbing gym where he suffered cardiac arrest and died. And yet, two hours later, he was alive once again. Quote, he climbed to the top of the wall, rang the bell, as we were told to do, and then his body went limp, and it looked like he was either playing around or that he might have passed out. They weren't quite sure what really happened until they realized he was unresponsive and they began to lower him to the ground, said his mother, Jennifer Burko. Paramedics and doctors proceeded to administer CPR for two hours before finally informing the family that he was gone. Quote from the mom, she and her husband then were starting to talk to him, tell him how much they loved him and were so sorry that they didn't know how to save him. And suddenly, says mom, as I started praying, my husband said, oh my gosh, he's moving. And so, that's exactly right, Joel. Amen, brother. And so the couple shouted for the medical team who raced back in and began administering aid. Due to how long Sammy went without oxygen, there was fear that he had suffered major brain damage. However, aside from some physical injury, he has only experienced short-term memory loss. And the doctors are calling it a miracle. Isn't that amazing? You believe that? I mean, come on. How crazy is that? The guy, the boy, really, he, he, he's dead for two hours. And he comes back to life two hours later. Now, here's one for you. How about someone who's been gone for four days who then comes back to life? That's the very story that we looked at last week when Jesus raised Lazarus to life. And I think sometimes we can hear these stories and and we can think, well, you know, that sort of thing happened all the time back then. Or, yeah, you know, people just were kind of gullible and would believe anything. Well, no. No to both accounts. Number one, people didn't die for four days and then come back to life, ever. That is as difficult for them to have believed as it would be for you and me to believe today. I mean, there are some of you I know in a gathering this size who just heard that story and are going, hmm, was it really two hours? So this didn't happen every day. And my friends, people saw Lazarus. They talked with him. They were there. They saw him come forth from the tomb. And that set in a chain, set in motion a chain of events that now we're going to look at and wrestle with today. Because this passage picks up on what happened in the aftermath of that. And as we look at this together today, I, wanna, I want you to watch for the pattern of two as I read this passage to you. There are two responses to Lazarus's resurrection. There are two options that the Jewish leadership considers now that this has happened that they're going to take. And there are two outcomes that happened 
at the very end of this story. So our magic number today is two. So watch for these things as I read this passage to you and understand this is coming right at the wake of Lazarus being raised back to life. This is what it says. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And he didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied, he predicted, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So let's begin to work our way back through this passage. There were two responses that we saw to Lazarus's resurrection, and they're in the first couple verses. Belief and unbelief. It says many of the Jews believed in him, but it says some of them basically went and tattled. They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done and, and what had happened with Lazarus. And honestly, I look at this, and, and I initially, at least, I, I begin to struggle with it a little bit. I mean, here's Lazarus. He was dead for four days, and he comes out of the tomb. He comes back to life. These things don't happen every day. In fact, they never happen. And yet, people don't believe that? Isn't seeing believing? I mean, wouldn't any reasonable, rational person see that and go, holy cow, this is a bona fide class A God miracle? Because this just doesn't happen every day. And yet, you have these people who don't believe because seeing isn't always believing. And we've looked at this reality in the past. And this, this is a spiritual reality, is that evidence, like someone coming back from the dead like Lazarus, it helps faith, it helps belief, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it. And there's some dynamics to this. One of these we saw at Easter. If you'll think back with me, when we fast-forwarded to John chapter 20 and the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus rises from the dead, what does he spend his time doing? Going to his disciples and doing what? Helping them believe. He gives them what they need to believe. To believe in Jesus, you need his help. You need to respond to his help. So have you? I'm sure there are a number of spiritual journeys represented here in a gathering of this many of us. Have you responded to his help to to believe in him? Because, Because you need it. And if you haven't, the first place to start is to ask. 
In fact, the starting point for faith, for belief in Jesus, is to admit you don't have it. And then to ask for his help. To, to have it. For him to reveal himself to you. For you to get it. And then ultimately for you to get him as, as your Lord and Savior. I mean, by way of example, when Jesus appears to Thomas, and what do we know Thomas as? The the doubting Thomas, right? Because Thomas is the disciple who said, hey, unless I can stick my hands in his hands, unless I can stick my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. Jesus shows up, and what does he say? My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Seeing is believing. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, at the end of the day, God will do his part. No one wants you to see him, hear him, experience him, respond to him more than God himself. And he will reveal himself to you and me. But we have to do our part, and that is we have to choose to believe in Jesus. And again, we looked at this reality at Easter. Some people will say, well, you know, that's just a blind leap of faith. No, it's not. It's not a leap of faith. It's a step of faith. And there's a big difference. Tremendous amount of evidence that asserts that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that's a whole nother sermon. But the reality is, it's not an issue of, you know, can I believe? It's will you believe? Because now we see the other interplay that's going on here. One, one choice was to believe in Jesus, but now we see this other choice, evidenced by those who went to the religious leaders and, and basically tattled on what Jesus had done. That's called unbelief. And unbelief and doubt are two different things. We saw doubt with Thomas's example, where he says, man, you know, I, I need to see for myself. He does, and he drops his conditions, and he chooses to believe. What unbelief would look like is if Jesus had appeared to Thomas, and Thomas said, yeah, I'm not buying it. You see, unbelief is not the absence of something like evidence or time or just more process. Unbelief is the presence of something. It is the commitment to not believe. It is a resistance and a refusal despite the evidence, despite what's right in front of you and me, to not believe. And it's what we see exampled in these religious leaders. But even for those of us who know Jesus, we know better. We, we, he's real to us. We've experienced him. We've seen him move in our lives. Even we can still do battle with unbelief, and we need to. Because it has many different disguises for us. It will look like, at times, um, being dismissive. Like, ah, well, you know, whatever. That really doesn't impact my life. Or we chalk things up to coincidence. Ah, oh, that couldn't be God. That's just, you know, that just kind of happened. Or we explain it away, you know, the reason this guy was alive was because, well, the doctors were doing two hours worth of CPR on him, and, you know, that, you know, that just eventually brought him back, but they had stopped the CPR and had given up. So how do you explain him coming back to life? Well, you know, who knows, but God couldn't have done that. All those are examples of unbelief. That is choosing not to believe. That is resisting, refusing to believe. So this is where we begin to do business with this personally. How are you struggling with believing in God this morning? How are you being challenged with that right now? Where you're, where you're, if you're honest with yourself, you're struggling to believe the promises of God, the presence of God, the work of God. 
Moms, happy Mother's Day. We do love you and we celebrate you. But like any holiday that we have like this, it brings joy and celebration, but it also brings pain, does it not? This is the second Mother's Day without my mom. She died before Mother's Day last year. And I think I was in too much shock and grief last year for Mother's Day to have any kind of difference than any other day. But man, am I missing her this year. And many of you have some kind of pain, something that you're doing battle with directly tied to Mother's Day. And something I appreciated about that video that we got to watch together is that it spoke to a lot of those, those realities. But man, sometimes it's hard to choose to believe in Jesus. And what we see in the life of these religious leaders and those who went and told them what Jesus had done is, is this reality of, of unbelief. And look, look where it goes here with the religious leaders. So they pull together a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and in, in simple form, the Sanhedrin was the, the Jewish leadership, basically their equivalent of our Supreme Court that made the ultimate decisions on matters like this that affected the people, affected the nation. And so it was 70 people comprised of the Pharisees who were the religious conservatives and the Sadducees who were the religious liberals, and they came together, rarely agreed on anything, very contentious, but they seem to be in one lockstep here because they begin to consider their options, and here's one of those twos we talk about. The first option is to do nothing, and that's basically what they say is, what are we accomplishing here? He continues to perform signs, and if we let this go on, if we do nothing, well, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come take away both our temple and, and our nation. And, and so that's, that's not a great idea as they're reasoning this out. And this is where I think in many ways we begin to see all these ironies begin to play themselves out. For instance, Jesus has made it abundantly clear he's not coming to bring political change. And they have tried to entrap him in that, over and over again, for those of you who, who know your Bibles, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, and, and many of you this is famous for, even if you're not um, familiar with that passage in that verse, they come to Jesus to trap him, to expose him as having some kind of political agenda to overthrow the Roman government. And so they say, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? You remember that? And what does Jesus say, very famously? Give to Caesar what is... Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And not just there, but throughout the Gospel of John, in fairness, Jesus over and over again has said, I am not here with a political agenda. His agenda was far more significant with that. He, he doesn't want to change politics. He, want to change, he wants to change people from the inside out. He wants people to be transformed by having right relationship with God through him. And ironically, they do have political ambitions. I mean, if we look closer at what they're saying, they're as concerned or more concerned about themselves and their hold on influence and power as they are truly being concerned about the fate of the nation. So this first option is to do nothing, and they immediately discard that. And then Caiaphas speaks up. And you know, I'm just being honest with you, I really don't like this guy. <laughs> look how he responds. You know nothing at all. Can you imagine how our leadership meetings would go, how our elder team meetings would go, or even our staff meetings, if one of us said, you know nothing at all? You know, as we're trying to make decisions, it's just, okay. But that's what he does. And look what he says here. It's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. So basically what he's saying here is, why sacrifice 
the nation for Jesus when Jesus can be sacrificed on behalf of the nation. It's actually quite brilliant in their, in their thinking. And look at the ironies here. Jesus is going to die, but not to remove political trouble, but to remove sin from the lives of all those who will believe in him. He will sacrifice himself, and they will make sure he sacrifices himself. They'll see that he's killed in order to save the nation. And again, ironically, 40 years later, the nation will be subjugated once again as the Romans come in once again, and this time they raise the temple to the ground and much of the city as well. And so they think they're saving the nation by sacrificing Jesus, and it, and it doesn't, doesn't work. And this is the biggie. Caiaphas, of all people, prophesizes, predicts, declares something that is true and that he has no idea about, really, that he doesn't completely understand, that despite what they're going to do here, they are setting in motion God's plan. He's using their broken, sinful, selfish choices to accomplish the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think this is one of the gems that's in this passage for us, and one of the spiritual realities is we have to trust God to accomplish his plan and purposes. And we looked at this dynamic some last week with Gary when he took us through the story of Lazarus. Jesus wants you to have future faith. He wants you and me to believe in the reality that he is going to come back, that ultimately he's going to set all wrongs right, he's going to restore everything to the way it was always intended to be, he's going to rule and reign, he's coming, he is coming back, that is going to happen. That is future faith to believe that. But even more so, he wants you and me to have faith now. He's looking for future faith, he's looking for present faith. So do you? Do, do you believe in him now? Sometimes it's really hard to, quite honestly, because you don't see his work. You don't see him doing anything, or things are really hard. And yet, we can see his work in the good things and in the bad things. Let's start with some good things. And we want to, my family and I want to invite you into this in order to share our joy with you. But this last weekend was a big, big weekend for our family. Like a number of you, we had a graduate among us. So our youngest daughter, Kaylea, graduated from Idaho State with a master's in speech language pathology. So we got on planes and flew to Idaho. And so, yeah, thank you. And celebrated that. And like all graduates, she's worked very, very hard and diligently for that. So any graduates among us here, congratulations. We're proud of you. You've worked hard. Epic, fantastic, great weekend. But equally exciting was that she got engaged the day before she left for graduation. And the best part was she didn't know it was coming. It was so fun. The parents knew, some members of our family knew, and of course the groom-to-be knew. And... Um, <laughs> He better have known, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let that one sail on, okay? But he, asked, he came to me and asked for my daughter's hand in January. So we've known this has been in motion for a while, and it's been so hard to keep a secret. My youngest daughter, Kalia, our youngest daughter, Kalia, um, she's like her mom. I can't hide anything from her. She always guesses surprises. She picks up on subtleties and details and nuances. I always think I'm so clever, and she saw me coming a mile away when it comes to surprising Jamie. So it, she's, she's really difficult to surprise, and so is Kalia, our youngest daughter. 
So we thought, how in the world are we going to pull this off? And between us, little pastor confessional here, we may have um, altered reality a little bit in our communication with her or withheld information or over-exaggerated. Okay, we lied at times. I don't know how she's ever going to trust anything we ever say from here, but amazingly, we pulled it off, all of us, and she was absolutely surprised. So under the pretense of driving up to Bridal Veil Falls, what a coincidence, to get graduation pictures, up walks her um, soon-to-be fiancé, Luke, and Luke shows up at her door, and she's completely surprised, and she says, what are you doing here? And as he opens the car door for her, he says, you'll see. And so he takes her to this point right there um, at Bridalville Falls, drops to one knee and proposes to her. And she said, no, it was really sad. No, she said yes. And she said said, yes. That is not the face of a girl who says no, right? She's pretty excited and so are we. And we we love Luke. He just fits seamlessly into our family. We've been able to spend a lot of time with him in the last year, especially. So it's just, we're we're so grateful and so blessed. So here's the question for you as we look at the interplay of some of these things in this very passage we're looking at. Who gets credit for that? Who gets credit for what you just saw? Thank you. Thank you. But I actually played a small part. Jamie played a far bigger part than I. But what about Luke and Kalia? Did they not make choices here? And the answer is yes. No one's being forced to do anything here. They've chosen to get married. So let's do some business with that. For starters, we're going to open a can of worms here, but I think it's necessary to go there. For starters, please hear me because this doesn't always get communicated clearly. Marriage does not complete you as a person. Jesus does. Whether you are single or married, you are made complete in Jesus. Therefore, not everyone's going to get married. Not everyone should get married. Not everyone wants to get married. And that is okay. You are not any less of a person, any less complete in Jesus, if you're single or if you're married. So the reason I'm pressing on this a little bit on who gets credit is that Jamie and I do have a hand in this. For over 30 years, we've been praying that if, if our kids got married, they would marry someone who loved the Lord. And gratefully, thankfully, in each case, that is true. It's true for our oldest daughter, our son, and, and Kelia. But we didn't make that happen. That, that's called determinism. If we think that we can pray, and then always get what we want, always get things on our terms, that that's not how it works. Now, God is relationally responsive to us. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us good things, but we don't always get what we ask for. There was no guarantee, A, that Kaylea was ever going to get married, and B, that she was going to marry a Jesus follower, but, but she has, and she made choices in that, and Luke has made a choice in that, and we've made choices in that, and God has worked. And I don't fully understand how that works. But what I do know is that somehow God uses our choices, and we are not manipulated in those choices. We are free to make choices, good choices, bad choices, broken choices, God-honoring choices. But also with that is God's sovereignty, his power, his plan, his presence, his work, his will, his ways. And somehow those interplay at the end of the day that God gets his way that God somehow accomplishes his plan in the good things, like what I just talked about, but also in the difficult and hard things. Caiaphas had no idea what he was truly saying. And what he intended for evil, God ultimately used for the death, burial, 
and resurrection of Jesus. I'll give you one more quick example. So for those of you who were here with us, you remember the week before Easter this year, we had an Easter Seder representative meal, and Dan Sered of Jews for Jesus facilitated that for us. I had the chance to go out to dinner with Dan before we had that Seder together, and he just began to tell me these stories that I kept asking for and asking questions about. Um, as, as one of the leaders of Jews for Jesus, he travels all around the world to connect with folks who are a part of that ministry and that outreach, and he talked about going to Ukraine before the war and going to Ukraine this last year and a half during the war as well. And he said, Jay, it's not being reported in the mainstream media, and even though the war continues to rage, there are people, so many people, who have been displaced from Ukraine, millions, really, to the surrounding nations, and who primarily has been the the folks to take them in, to give them community, to literally take them into their homes, to love them. It's the church. It's Jesus' followers. And so, through this horrible, awful, tragic war, you have these millions of people getting displaced, and many of them are hearing about Jesus, and many of them are receiving Jesus. And God is somehow using this tragedy and this difficulty to carry forth his plan. And so where this becomes real personal and applicable for you and me is this. I know that today, now, there are some of you who, boy, you're just, you're hurting whether it's associated with this holiday or not. You're in a hard spot. You're in a difficult place. And you're wondering where God is. And so today, through his word, he comes to you and me and he asks us once again, will you trust me? Will you trust me with your choices? And even the broken, selfish, hurtful, painful choices that those make around you that impact you, that hurts you, that influence you? Will you trust me somehow to take all that somehow and work my plan and my purposes? So will you trust him? Will I choose to trust him? Because this is the reality. This isn't just a story. This is our story, and I'll prove it to you because the word proves it to you. What does Caiaphas say here? That Jesus will die not only for the Jewish nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And for those of us who have been together through this John series, that should ring some bells. That connects and links directly back to what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Remember when he said this? I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And here it comes. They shall be one flock and one shepherd. And I love how this is summarized in Paul's letter to Timothy. God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This isn't about just the Jewish people. This is about all people. God's heart is that all people would come to know him and love him and be connected to him. This is your story, and it's mine. And again, here's some more irony. These Jewish leaders are just thinking about themselves and very secondarily their own people when God's heart has always been for everyone, Old Testament to new. And this, of course, is a defining moment. This is where the Jewish leadership definitively decides we are going to kill Jesus. And that's the option they choose. We're going to sacrifice him for the sake of the nation, so they think. God's plan is for him to be sacrificed for the entire world. And so they give orders to arrest him. I said there were two outcomes. One outcome, 
for Jesus as he withdraws to a little village that we read about called Ephraim, about 12 miles as we can place it. It doesn't exist anymore, but as we can place it historically, about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem, far enough to be out of the reach of the Sanhedrin, but close enough for him to return, which he will when we pick up the passage next week to Bethany, which is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, and then to Jerusalem for the Passover itself. So Jesus withdraws, and the religious leaders watch. And the way this is written, this isn't looking like it says the pilgrims were doing, the Passover pilgrims. This is watching with the intent of catching Jesus, arresting Jesus, and ultimately killing Jesus. As I was preparing for our time, I always consult commentaries and other resources to, to, to help me. Um, and I remember reading in this one commentary something I'd never seen before and really appreciated until it came to this point. And it's this. These Passover pilgrims necessarily had come to Jerusalem because that's, if you could, that's what you did for the Passover. But it says that they were enacting, performing their ceremonial cleansing, which again was what you did in preparation for Passover. But these ceremonial, ceremonial cleansings always pointed to, always looked to, one day when the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one would come and he would cleanse not just their bodies but their hearts. He would cleanse them in a way that they never could be cleansed from the inside out. Not from trying harder, not from being a good person, not from being moral, not from being religious, but from being new. By getting a new heart, by receiving God, Jesus, into ultimately into their lives. And so... This cleansing is pointing to the very one who's right in front of them. He's the one who all this pointed to. And yes, this is not explicit in the passage we just read, but it kind of ties together where we've been going and where we're going to go in the coming weeks. So this is an unapologetic primer for where we're, where we're going to be going. But if we take this reality of cleansing and we jump to John chapter 13, and we'll eventually get there, where Jesus is having the last meal with the disciples, and um, remember that he's offering and is going to cleanse their feet, which is something no one would have ever done. That was even considered too menial, too denigrating, too devaluing of a job, even for a Jewish slave. A non-Jewish slave was the one who cleaned people's feet. And yet here's Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist, and he's going to clean their feet. And he's explaining to them why they need to do this. And remember, Peter right before this says, hey, if, if this is the only way to be cleansed, cleanse my hands, you know, give me a bath. And this is what Jesus says. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Peter, you're already cleansed. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. If you have been saved by receiving Jesus into your life, then you have been bathed and you have been cleansed. And Jesus very deliberately is reminding them of their identity. And what he's calling them and exampling them to do is to serve others the way he has served them. And this, again, is another unapologetic primer for where we'll go next week. I've got to give you a reason to come back. Is Mary will do something so astounding, the sister of Lazarus, she will do something so astounding when Jesus returns to Bethany to their home that it takes the breath away of everyone there. In fact, it invites criticism, the manner in which she serves the Lord. And she does that, as we'll see next week in greater detail, because of how he has first served her. 
You serve others, you serve the Lord because he first served you. And we say this often, but the incredible news of the gospel, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and him coming into us and changing us from the inside out is living that out is always a response to what he's done for you. Why should I forgive someone who doesn't deserve it? And you and I did. Jesus forgave me. Therefore, I know how to forgive. I can forgive others. Why should I give to people who don't deserve it? Because didn't Jesus give to me when I didn't deserve it? And the same for you. Why should I serve someone who's never going to say thank you? Because Jesus first served you and quite possibly didn't get a thank you from you. And so it goes. We live the gospel by responding to the gospel by responding to what God has already done for us. And so what this all is all about is joining him in his work. What Jesus is modeling to them in John chapter 13 is to serve him by serving others because he first served them. So his invitation for you and me is not just to be spectators, but to join, participate in his, in his work by serving one another. And ultimately, by doing that, we're serving We're serving him. One of my frequent prayers for you as one of your pastors is that you would not only join God's work, but you'd be able to see it. That you would be able to see his work in the daily rhythms of your life and and mine. And this really becomes a challenge when you don't see his work, does it not? Ever felt like God has left the scene? That he's not around? You look at your circumstances and you just, you do not see him. Of course you do. If you haven't, because of this broken world we live in, that, that's going to come your way at some point. Will you still choose to trust him and, and to serve him in those times? And once again, we will unapologetically encourage you and ask you to consider serving here in a ministry at Grace. This is a card that's in the seat backs before you. And at any point, you can choose to enter in and just get more information about how you can serve. Because the reality is, my friends, and this is what our website looks like for the very same thing, the reality is we need you. And you need us. You know, by way of example, we've got too many babies in the nursery. What a great problem to have. Can you hold a baby? You're qualified. We'd love to have you do that. But there, there are so many ways. And some of you are saying, hey, wait a minute. This is a slick recruiting move. No, I'm not that sophisticated and not that slick. It's pretty overt. <laughs> I mean, really. We, we want you to join into serving here because we want you to experience the work of God. We want you to experience God himself because we are on the front lines and have a front row seat to God changing people's lives by seeing miracles happen every day people coming back from the dead to life being spiritually dead and finding life finding joy finding purpose finding peace man who doesn't want to be a part of that i I do it's why i'm here and i hope it's true for you too and we'd love for you to hear an example of how god is changing lives right among us i'm going to invite johnny gutierrez to come forward johnny Um, serves in our middle school ministry and invests into the lives of our, our students. 
And I won't steal too much of your story, I promise, Johnny. But what's so cool about Johnny's story is Johnny was one of those middle school students years ago. And now he's back as a young adult investing into the lives of students. So would you, would you just tell us some of your story of what the Lord's done and how he's changed you? Yeah, so like Jay said, my name is Johnny or Jonathan Gutierrez. And uh, I have been coming here to Grace as long as I could remember. I started out in elementary school and then coming up through middle school and high school. And um, a little bit more about me is that growing up, I was surrounded by a lot of godly people. So I see that as a really big blessing for me. And it was kind of a good thing that I grew up in the church. But it was also one of those things where I was really stubborn. And I knew the people around me, but I just didn't really want it to affect me that much. I just saw it as people walking by just knowing God was out there, but I just didn't really make that connection. And I just was really stubborn, just like my mom would tell me to be, not be stubborn when I wanted to do something. None of us can relate to that, Johnny, but no. go ahead. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So although I knew God, I just didn't let that change me or let that make me the person who I am today. Um, and through that, it became me living in hypocrisy. I had a double life, kind of like putting on a mask on whenever I was here at church or I was out in school or out with a group of friends. And that was just, I was just constantly listening to the word but not really letting it change me. And that's one of the two, the two biggest sins I saw in my life. Um, and through that, God was using those, the people around me to tell me that I was not doing okay. I was living the double life, like I said. Um, uh, when in our church, about a few years ago, we had a family member who uh, his wife uh, found out that she had cancer in the very late stages. So she had three months expectedly, but then she only made it to two. So we, I went over to my friend, tried to comfort him. But when I met his dad uh, and saw him through during this time, um, he did mourn for her. But he showed up on Sunday to church, and I was wondering why, when it's only been two days. And he said uh, that he'd rather come back and worship God because he knew the plans he had, kind of like Job, when he was going through those struggles of all of what Satan was touching him through. Hmm. And I really was inspired, and I'm like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be strong in moments of hard times. And that's kind of also when the people around me started telling me, hey, you need to do this. If you're going to be coming to church, you need to live through the actions and actually use the words to live out your life. So I got a lot of support. One of the biggest examples for me was Matt Patrick, who basically raised me. So he's like a grandpa to me, which I really (laughs) am happy about. I love that. Yeah. We love Matt Patrick. Yeah, we do. But I'm going to call him grandpa now. (laughs) Fantastic. So, yeah. So, Matt really challenged me a lot throughout my life to really change, and that's when I started reading more of the Word, devotionals, started really living on what I was listening to. And one of the verses that made me recognize was Colossians 3.16, the first part of it, actually, which is where... Now I lost it. Let the teachings of Christ live inside you richly. Use all wisdom to teach and counsel each other which is the first half of the verse, which that part touched me really hard and made me realize that I wasn't really living richly as I should have. And through that, it also 
was, God was telling me that there's people around me that are going to look up to me as I get older and that there needs to be an example for them throughout these times. And one of the mothers at our church was telling me of now that I'm older, she was telling me about her kids are really invested in wanting to be with me just because she sees that I am completely different compared to the kids around my age. And she said, they really want to hang out with you. They just want to be around you. You're more of like the good, the good vibe that they want in their lives. So I, told, I was really touched by that too. And since then, God has changed me in many ways. Once I got told by everybody what needed to happen and challenged by my grandpa, Matt. And <laughs> You've made my whole week. You know I, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and from that, I've um, learned to also not get angry quickly, not mm-hmm. blow my fuse like I used to when I was younger. I just, God, God taught me how to respond directly to the problems I was facing, not frustration, but more in calmness and try to talk it out and he also helped me out build my relationship with my brother because when we were younger we would do the classic hey I stole this but you don't know I'll tell you later in the week or like we do now we steal each other's shoes out of nowhere but are those yours or his oh those are mine okay okay it's okay okay I I would let him know next time but (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we started each reading a book. He's reading Proverbs, and I'm reading the book of Psalms. We read a chapter a night, and then we would go to each other and try to explain what we understand. And if there's something we either miss, we would try to help each other understand more of that. So we just build a stronger relationship throughout the years. And back to the story of the mother who told me about her kids. Um, Before that, when COVID hit and we were starting to come back to church, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do in the church. And my pastor kind of just threw me into the production and music uh, department or ministry. And I was kind of like, okay, this is a one-time deal kind of thing. That I was just going to go and leave and then go back to sitting in the auditorium. But no, um, through that, they, a lot of people came up to me and told me, hey, this is a gift that they were that is given to you and you should use it more. Hmm. And through that, uh, her kids are like, hey, can we hang out with him during the service out in the, in the back seats where I usually sit? So that's when I started to realize, okay, I'm setting an example Hmm. now that God has changed my life. And I am also being a healthy role model for these kids that are maybe having a hard time in school. And when they come on Sundays or Tuesdays and Wednesdays, they really enjoy being around me. And that's one of the many things that God has done in my life to change and help those around me, which I really enjoy. Ah, love it. Love it, Johnny. Thank you. Um, invite our worship team to go ahead and come on up. Johnny, you, you know, you remind me of 1 Timothy 4.12 that says, Do not let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example for the believers in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. And you're, and you're doing that. You're living it. And I'm so glad that you are investing into the lives of our middle school students. You're exactly the guy we want there. So thank you for your story. And we're just so grateful for what God's done in you. So, thank you. So, how is He calling you to trust Him this morning? What does that look like for you? What does that What does that look like for me? For some of you in your spiritual journey, it means you make that defining moment decision to step into relationship with Him. You may know about Him, but that's very different than knowing Him. 
as your God. And there's a defining moment where you choose to receive him into your life. I'm going to pray in just a minute. We'll give you the opportunity to do that. Some of you, to your credit, you're asking questions. You're wrestling with this in your spiritual journey. Keep, keep coming back. Keep, keep asking those questions. Keep seeking. Because that in itself is proof that he's working in your life. You're not doing that on your own. And for those of us who do know him, regardless of what's going on in your life today or what's before you or what you're anticipating or what you're struggling with from the past, what does it look like for you to trust him today? I love these words out of the passage that we were in last week. They're, they're my most favorite words out of that chapter and some of my most favorite verses. It's where Martha comes to Jesus and she, like Mary, is so disappointed and heartbroken that Jesus wasn't there to, to keep Lazarus from dying and they didn't know yet that that was Jesus' purpose in delaying was so that he could show who he was and that he had the power over death. And it was always his plan to bring Lazarus back to life, but she didn't know that. And so she came to him and, and she poured her heart out to him. And he said this to her in response, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I hope that you do. Let me pray his blessing over you as we prepare to go from here. Lord, I, I pray for everyone who has gathered here today. I pray for those who in their spiritual journey, to their credit, are considering you. Know that you are not yet their God, but they're here. They're asking questions. They're wrestling. Lord, I pray that they would continue that, that they would not grow discouraged in trying to find you. And God, I thank you for the many promises to get that you give to all of us that when we seek you, when we seek you with all our hearts, you will show yourself to us. And God, I pray for those here who maybe haven't made that defining moment decision to receive you into their lives as their Lord and Savior. I pray that they would be compelled by your spirit to not wait any longer, but to have what they have been looking for and that's new life today and in the future through you. So Lord, between you and them, just silently, would they ask you to come into their lives? Would they say, Jesus, I want you in my life as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would give them assurance that you are with them now. And Lord, for those of us who know and love you, would you help us to renew our trust in you again today with whatever is before us, with whatever we're dealing with, whatever uh, maybe we're struggling with from our past, would we remember that you can be trusted, that you're present, that you're real, that you always do what you say you will do. So would we live that now? And as we go from here, we have hope. So would we look for opportunities to live that hope, speak that hope, and to serve others in that hope? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Once again, moms, happy Mother's Day. Right around the corner, we have a photo booth if you'd like to take some pictures with those you came with to celebrate this special day. And if you've received Jesus into your life, please tell someone, come tell me. We'd love to celebrate that with you. But go and live for him. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.